Chapter Eleven of the Bells of San Juan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Bells of San Juan by Jackson Gregory. Chapter Eleven: The Fight at Casablanca. It was something after six o'clock when Jim Galloway rode into San Juan, leaving his sweat-soaked horse in his own stable at the rear of the Casablanca, passed through the patio and into a little room whose door he unlocked with a key from his pocket. For ten minutes he sat before a typewriting machine, one big forefinger slowly picking out the letters of a brief note. The address, also typed, bore the name of a town below the border. Without signing his communication, he sealed it into its envelope and, relocking the door as he went out, walked thoughtfully down the street to the post office. As he passed Strauv's hotel, he lifted his hat. Upon the veranda at the cooler shaded end, Virginia was entertaining Florence Engle. Florrie nodded brightly to Galloway, turning quickly to Virginia as the big man went on. "'Do you actually believe, Virginia, dear,' she whispered, that that man is as wicked as they say he is? Did you watch him going by? Did you see the way he took off his hat? Did you ever know a man to smile quite as he does? I don't believe, returned Virginia, that I ever had him smile at me, Florrie. His eyes are not bad eyes, are they? Florrie ran on. Oh, I know what Papa thinks and what Rod thinks about him, but I just don't believe it. How could a man be the sort they say he is and still be as pleasant and as agreeable and downright good-looking as Mr. Galloway? Why? And she achieved a quick little shudder. If I had done all the terrible deeds they accuse him of, I'd go around looking as black as a cloud all the time, savage and glum and remembering every minute of how wicked I was. Virginia laughed, failing to picture Florrie, grown murderous, but Florrie merely pursed her lips as her eyes followed Galloway down the street. "'I ask you, Virginia Page,' she said at last, sinking back into the wide arms of her chair with a sigh, "'if a man with murder and all kinds of sin on his soul could make love prettily.' Virginia started. "'What do you mean?' she began quickly. Florrie laughed, but the other girl noted wonderingly a fresher tint of color in her cheeks. "'Goosey!' Florence topped her head, drew her skirts down modestly over her white stockinged ankles, and laughed again. "'He never held my hand and all that, but with his eyes is there any law against a man saying nice things with his eyes? And how is a girl going to stop him?' Virginia might have replied that there was a matter which depended very largely upon the girl herself, but instead estimating that there was little serious love-making on Galloway's part to be apprehended, and taking Florrie as lightly as Florrie took the rest of the world, she was merely further amused, and already she had learned a welcome amusement of any sort in San Juan town. But again here was Galloway, stopping now in front of Strove's, drawing another quick, bright smile from the banker's daughter accepting its invitation and coming into the little yard and down the veranda. Only when he fairly towered over the two girls did he push back the hat, which already he had touched to them, standing with his hands on his hips, his heavy features bespeaking a deep inward serenity and quiet good humor. It would have required a blinder man than Jim Galloway not to have marked the cool dislike and distrust in Virginia's eyes. 
but though he turned from them to the pink and white girl at her side, gave no sign of sensing that he was in any way unwelcome here. He had greeted Virginia casually, she observing him keenly, understood what Florrie had meant by a man's making love with his eyes. His look, directed downward into the face smiling up at him, was alive with what was obviously a very genuine admiration. While Florrie allowed her flattered soul to drink deep and thirstily of the wine of adulation, Virginia, only half understanding the writing in Galloway's eyes, shivered a little and, leaning forward, suddenly put her hand on Florrie's arms. The gesture, quick and spontaneous, meant nothing to Florrie, nothing to Galloway, and a very great deal to Virginia Page, for it was essentially protective. It served to emphasize in her own mind a fear which until now had been a mere formless mist, a fear for her frivolous little friend. Galloway's whole being was so expressive of conscious power, Florrie's of vacillating impulsiveness, that it required no considerable burden laid upon the imagination to picture the girl coming if he called, if he called with the look in his eyes now, with the tone he knew to put into his voice. Social lines are none too clearly drawn in towns like San Juan. Often enough, they have long ago failed to exist. A John Ingle, though six days of the seven he sat behind his desk in a bank, was only a man, his daughter only the daughter of a mere man. A Jim Galloway, though he owned the Casablanca and upon occasion stood behind his own bar, might be a man and look with level eyes upon all other men, their wives, and their daughters. Here, with conditions what they always had been, there could stand but one barrier between Galloway and Florrie Engel, the barrier of character. And already the girl had cried, His eyes are not bad eyes, are they? A barrier is a silent command to pause. What is the spontaneous answer of a spoiled child to any command? Galloway spoke lightly of this and that, managing in a dozen ways to compliment Florrie, who chattered with a gaiety which partook of excitement. In ten minutes he went his way, drawing her amusing eyes after him, until he had reached his own door and turned it at the Casablanca. The two girls on Strog veranda were silent. Florrie's thoughts were flitting hither and yon, bright-winged and consequential, fluttering about Jim Galloway, deserting him for Roderick Norton, darting off to Elmer Page, coming home to Florrie herself. As for Virginia, conscious of a sort of dread, she was oppressed with the stubbornly insistent thought that if Jim Galloway cared to amuse himself with Florrie, he was strong and she was weak. If he called to her, she would follow. Virginia was not the only one whom Galloway had set pondering. Certain of his words spoken to the sheriff when the two faced each other on the Tecolo Trail gave Norton food for thought. For the first time, Jim Galloway had openly offered a bribe, one of no insignificant proportions, prefacing his offer with the remark, I have just begun to imagine lately that I have doped you up wrong all the time. If Galloway had gone on to add, time was when I didn't believe I could buy you, but I have changed my mind about this. His meaning could have been no plainer. Now he held out a bribe in one hand, a threat in the other, and Norton, riding on to Tecolote, mused long over both of them. In Tecolote, a struggling village of many dogs and swarthy, grimy-faced children, he tarried until well after dark, 
making his meal of coffee, frijoles, and chili con carne, thereafter smoking a contemplative pipe, abandoning the little lunchroom to the flies in silence, he crossed the road to the saloon kept by Pete Nunez, the brother of the man whom it was Norton's present business to make answer for crime committed. Pete, a law-abiding citizen nowadays, principally for the reason that he had lost a leg in his younger gayer days, swept up his crutch and swung across the room from the table where he was sitting to the bar, saying a careless, Gyohei, by way of greeting. Hello, Pete, Norton returned quietly. Haven't seen Vidal lately, have you? Besides Vidal's brother, there were a half-dozen men in the room playing cards or merely idling in the yellow light of a kerosene lamp swung from the ceiling, men of the saloon-keeper's breed to the last man of them. Their eyes, the slumberous, mystery-filled orbs of their kind, had lifted under their long lashes to regard the sheriff with seeming indifference. Pete shrugged. "'Me? I ain't seen Vidal for a month,' he answered briefly. I see Jim Galloway, though, Galloway say, and Pete ran his towel idly back and forth along the bar. Fidel, come to La Casa Blanca tonight. I don't know. And again he shrugged. Norton allowed himself the luxury of a mystifying smile as Pete Nunez lifted probing eyes to his face. Jim Galloway has been known to lie before now, like other men, was all of the information he gave to a questioning look. And his face suddenly as expressionless as Pete's own. It wouldn't be a bad bet to look for Vidal and Trace Robles, would it? Eh, hey, Pete? With that he went out, quite willing that Pete and his crowd should think what they pleased. Trace Robles lay twenty miles northwest of Telecote, and if Pete cared to send word to Galloway that the sheriff had ridden on that way, well, and good. Half an hour later, with the deeper dark of the night settling thick and sultry over the surface of the desert lands, he rode out of town, following the Trace Robles trail. He knew that Pete had come to his door and was watching. He had the vague suspicion that it was quite possible that Vidal was watching too, with eyes smoldering with hatred. That was only a guess, not even for a man to hazard a bet upon, but the feeling that the fugitive was somewhere in Tecolote, or in the mesquite thickets nearabouts had been strong enough to send him traveling this way in the afternoon would have been strong enough for him to have acted upon searching through shack after shack were it not that deep down in his heart he did not believe that jim galloway had lied here while he came in at one door fidel might slip out another safe among friends but in the casablanca norton meant that matters would be different for an hour he rode toward the northeast then, turning out of the trail and reining his horse into the utter blackness offered by the narrow mouth of an arroyo, he sat still for a long time, listening, staring back toward Tecolote. At last, confident that he had not been followed, he cut across the low-rying lomas, marking the western horizon, and in a sweeping gallop rode straight toward San Juan. He had had ample time for the shaping of his simple plans long before catching the first winking glimpse of the lights of Casablanca. He left his horse under the cottonwoods, hung his spurs over the horn of the saddle, and went silently to the back of Strauv's hotel, certain that no one had seen him. He half-circled the building, came to the window which he had counted upon finding open, slipped in, and passed down the hall to Strauv's room. 
At his light tap, Struff called, Come in, and turned toward him as the door opened. Norton closed it behind him. I am taking a chance that Fidel Nunez is a Galloway's right now, he told the hotel keeper. I'm going to get him if he is. I want you to watch the back end of the Casablanca and see that he doesn't slip out that way. A shotgun is what you want. Blow the head off any man who doesn't stop when you tell him to. Is Tom Cutter in his room yet? While Straub, wasting neither time nor words, went to see, Norton unbuttoned his shirt, removed the thirty-eight caliber revolver from the holster slung under his left arm, whirled the cylinder, and kept the gun in his left hand. In a moment, Straub had returned, the deputy at his heels. Is this about Fidel being here? Cutter asked sharply. Norton explained briefly, and as briefly gave Tom Cutter his orders. When Strove mounted guard at the rear, Cutter was to look out for the front of the building. "'Going in alone, are you, Rod?' Cutter shook his head. "'Vidal is in there, and Galloway and the kid and Antone are all on the job. Chances are there's going to be something happen. Better let me come in along with you.' But Norton, his mouth grown set and grim and cherry of words, shook his head. Followed by Strove and Cutter, he was outside in the darkness five minutes after he had entered the hotel. Strove, a shotgun in his hands, took his place twenty steps from the back door of the Casablanca, his restless eyes sweeping back and forth continually. Taking stock of door and window, a lamp burning in a rear room, cast its light out through a window whose shade was less than half drawn. Tom Cutter, accustomed to acting swiftly upon his superior suggestions, listened wordlessly to the few whispered instructions, nodded, and did as he was told, effacing himself in the shadows at the corner of the building, prepared when the time came to spring out into the street, whence he could command the front and one side of the Casablanca. Norton, before leaving Cutter, had drawn the heavy gun from the holster swinging at his belt. "'Some time since we've had any two-handed shooting to do, Tommy,' he said as his lean fingers curved to the familiar grip of the Colt forty-five. But I guess we haven't forgotten how. Now stick tight till you hear things wake up. He was gone, turning back to the rear of the house, passing close to Strove, going on to the northeast corner, slipping quietly about it, moving like a shadow along the eastern wall. Here were two windows, both looking into the long bar room, both with their shades drawn down tight. At the first window, Norton paused, listening. From within came a man's voice, the kid's in his ugly snarl of a laugh, evil and reckless and defiant, that and the clink of a bottleneck against the glass. Norton, his body pressed against the wall, stood still, waiting for other voices, for Galloway's, for Vidal Nunez. But after Kid Rickard's jarring mouth, it was strangely still in the Casablanca. No noise of clicking chips, the speaking of poker game, no loud voice babble, no sound of a man walking across the bare floor. They're waiting for me, was Norton's quick thought. Galloway knew I'd come. He passed on and came to the second window and paused again. The brief, almost breathless silence within, which had followed the kid's laugh, had already been dissipated by the customary Casablanca sounds. A guitar was strumming, chips clicked, a bottle was set heavily upon the bar, a chair scraped. Norton frowned. A moment ago something happened in there to still men's tongues. What was it? It was Galloway who gave him his answer. So you did come, did you, Vidal? There was a jeer in the heavy voice. Scared to come, eh? 
and scared worse to stay away. Galloway's short laugh was as unpleasant as ever Rickards had been. See, si, I'm here. The voice of Vidal Nunez was answering quick, eager, sibilant, with its unmistakable nervous excitement. Pete, tell me what you say and I come. He lifted his voice abruptly, breaking into a soft southern oath. Like a cat to jump through the little window and roll on the floor and by God just in time. There is one man at the back with a gun and one man in front and another man. Let him come, cried Galloway loudly. A heavy hand smiting a tabletop, so a glass jumped and fell breaking to the floor. Only, and he sent his voice booming out warningly, any man who chips in, unmasks, and starts trouble in my house can take what's coming to him. So then Vidal had just arrived. It had been his sudden entrance which had invoked the silence in the barroom. Norton merely shrugged. There had been a chance of taking Vidal alone, intercepting him. But that chance had not been one to wait for. Now it was past, negligible, not to be regretted. At last he knew where Vidal Nunez was, and it was his business to make an arrest, and not to wait upon further chance. The man who is not ready to go into a crowd to get his lawbreaker is not the man to stand for sheriff in the southwest country. Coming, Galloway! Norton's ringing shot came back in answer. Suddenly the steady pulse of his blood had been stirred. The hot hope stood high in his heart again that he and Jim Galloway were going to look into each other's eyes with guns talking and an end of a long, devious trail in sight. For the moment he half forgot Vidal Nunez, whom he could fancy cowering in a corner. Then when he knew that every man in the Casablanca had turned sharply at his voice, he ran from the window to the street, turned the corner of the building, and in at the wide front doorway, a short hall, a closed door confronting him. Then that had been flung open, and on its threshold a gun in each hand, his hat far back on his head, his eyes on fire, he stood looking in on a half-dozen men, and three glinting steel barrels, which describing quick arcs, were whipped from the window toward him, a gun in Galloway's hand, one in the hand of Vidal Nunez, the third already spitting fire as Kid Rickard's narrow eyes shone above it. The other men had fallen back precipitately to the right and left. Norton noted that Elmer Page was among them, a pace or two from Rickard's side. The kid, being young, had something of youth impatience, perhaps the only reminiscence of youth left in a callous soul. So it was that he had shot a second too soon. Norton, as both hands rose in front of him, answered Kid Rickard with the smaller caliber gun, while the colt in his right hand was concerned impartially with Galloway and Vidal Nunez, standing close together. The kid cursed. His voice rose in a shriek of anger rather than pain, and he spun about and fell backward, tripping over an overturned chair. "'Shoot, Galloway!' cried Norton. "'Shoot! Damn you, shoot!' Now, as for the second time that day, the two men confronted each other, naked, hot hatred glaring out of their eyes. Each man knew that he stood balancing a crucial second, midway between death and triumph. Jim Galloway, who never until now had come out into the open in defiance of the law, must swallow his words under the eyes of his own gang, or once and for all forsake the semi-security behind his ambush. Again, issues were clear-cut. He answered the sheriff with a curse and a stream of lead. As he fired, he threw himself to the side, the old trick, his gun a little higher than his hip and fired again, and shot for shot, Norton answered him. Though but half the length of a room lay between them, as yet, neither man was hurt. 
for no longer were they in the rich light of their swinging coal lamp. The room was gathered in pitch darkness. Their guns spat long tongues of vivid flame. For just as Kid Rickard was falling while Jim Galloway's finger was crooked on the trigger, while Antone was whipping up his gun behind the bar, there had come a shot from the card room shattering the lamp. Neither Norton nor Galloway, Rickard nor Vidal Nunez, nor Antone, nor any of the other men in the room saw who had fired the shot. As the light went out, Norton leaped away from the door, having little wish to stand silhouetted against such a rectangle of pale light from the outer night. And leaping, he poured in his fourth and fifth and sixth shots in the quarter where he hoped to find Galloway. But always he remembered where he had seen Elmer Page standing, and always he remembered, Antone behind the bar and Vidal Nunez drawn back into the corner. His forty-five emptied, he jammed it back into its holster and stood rigid, staring into the blackness about him, every sense on the cuvee. Galloway had given over shooting. He might be dead or merely waiting. Vidal had held his fire, seeming frightened, uncertain, half-stunned, Antone would be leaning forward, peering with frowning eyes, trying to locate him. It swept into Norton's mind suddenly that thus, in utter and unexpected darkness, he had the upper hand. He could shoot, the law riding upon each flying pellet of lead, and be it Jim Galloway or Antone or Vidal, or any other of Galloway's crowd who fell, it would be a man who richly deserved what his fate was bringing him. They, on the other hand, being many against one, must be careful which way they shot. He had come for Vidal Nunez. The man he wanted was yonder. But a few feet from him, duty and desire pointed across the room to an obscure corner. He moved a cautious foot. The floor complained under his shifting weight, and from Galloway's quarter came a spit of fire. Twin with it came a shot from behind the bar. That was Antone talking. And now, at last, came the other shot from Vidal himself. Rod Norton's was that type of man which finds caution less to his liking than headlong action. Furthermore, in the present crisis, caution had seemed the acme of foolhardiness. There are times when true wisdom lies in taking one's chances boldly, flying halfway to meet it. Now as three bullets sang by him, he gathered himself then before the sharp reports had died in his ears and sprang forward, hurling himself across the room, striking with his lifted gun as he went, missing, striking again, and experiencing that grinding, crunching sensation transmitted along the metal barrel as it struck a man fair upon the head. The man went down heavily, and Norton stood over him, praying that it was Vidal Nunez. Then it was that Julius Straub, having departed his post at the rear, smashed through a window with the muzzle of his shotgun, sending the shade flipping up, springing back from the square, a faint light as he cried out sharply, "'Are you all right, Norton?' "'All right,' cried Norton. "'I'm against the north wall. Rake the other side of the bar with your shotgun. If they don't step out, you and Cutter together, I've got Ricardo Nunez out of it. Drop your gun, Galloway.' lively while well, you've got a chance antone strub's got a shotgun antone cursed and with a snarl of his voice came the clatter of a revolver slamming down on the bar galloway cursed and fired emptying his second gun crazed with hatred and blind anger again shot for shot norton answered him and again it grew very silent in the casablanca out through the window one by one with your hands up and your guns down shouted straub or i'll start in which is it boys there was a scramble to obey, the several men who had taken no part leading the way. As they went out, their forms were for a moment clearly outlined, then swallowed up in the outer darkness. At Strauff's command, they lined up against the wall, watched over by the muzzle of his shotgun. Antone, crying out that he was coming, followed Elmer Page, sick and dizzy, was at Antone's heels. Tom Cutter had gathered up some dry grass, and with that and a chance-found bit of wood started a blaze near the second window. 
In its wavering, uncertain light, the faces of the men stood out whitely. "'Galloway is not here yet,' he snapped, and lifting his voice, "'Come on, Galloway!' A crowd had gathered in the street, asking questions that went unanswered. Other hands added fuel to Cutter's fire. The increasing light at last penetrated the blackness, filling the barroom. "'Come out, Galloway,' said Stroff coldly. "'Got you covered.' Since things were bad enough as they were, and he had no desire to make them worse and saw no opportunity to better them, Jim Galloway, his hand nursing a bleeding shoulder, stumbled awkwardly through the opening. "'Is that all of them, Roddy?' called Cutter. Norton didn't answer. The deputy called again. Then, while the crowd surged about the door and window, Cutter came in, a revolver in his right hand, a torch of a burning faggot in his left, held high. Fidel Nunez was dead, not from a blow upon the head, but from a chance bullet through the heart after he had fallen. Kid Rickard, his sullen eyes wide with their pain, lay half under a poker table, lying across the body of Nunez, as though still guarding his prisoner, was the quiet form of Rod Norton, his face bloodlessly white, save for the smear of blood, which had run from the wound hidden by the close-cropped black hair. End of chapter 11